What have you been up to? Becky and her husband were both former students, two of my favorites. And I listened eagerly as she recounted their chronology of graduate schools, jobs, marriage, kids. Clearly, God had blessed them. Oh, and um, by the way, she said, we changed churches. Wow, I smiled. Tell me about that. She rolled her eyes. We just got so tired of the social gospel. Always hearing how we should be helping people instead of converting people. We wanted more evangelism, you know, more witnessing, more of the true gospel. Does that resonate with you? The word gospel means good news. The truth that Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sin so that we might become the children of God through faith in Jesus. Hasn't that been the focus of our studies for the past six weeks as we examined the solas of the Protestant Reformation? Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, glory to God alone. Nobody earns salvation. That is indeed good news. It is the gospel. But for many Christians, the gospel story stops there. And yet the Bible teaches that being saved is only the beginning of our journey with Christ. Genuine salvation transforms us. Everything about us. The same Holy Spirit who draws us to Christ in the first place begins to transform us into little Christs. If our salvation is authentic, we are becoming the image of Christ. And we are working with him and other Christians for the transformation of the world. That is the other side of the gospel, Cohen. The one some people call social gospel. Unless our salvation, our being saved, leads to partnership with God in resisting the oppression and working for a social order which Bob Dylan, see you know I've always got to quote Dylan, right? Calls the ladder of law has no top and no bottom. Unless that happens, we need to be suspicious about our salvation experience. Y'all, it's not just a get out of hell free card. The Bible teaches that we are saved 
by grace, through faith, for good works. Good works are not the root of our salvation, rather they are the fruit of our salvation. We learned that from the reformers too. And as John Ray taught us with such power and conviction last week, we do our good works best in community, in the church, understanding that the church itself is always being reformed. Judgment, John reminded us, must begin with the house of the Lord. Clearly, that reference to the house of the Lord is to the church. And if you've not heard last week's podcast, I implore you to listen to it. But when you cross-reference that, pastor, that passage in 1 Peter, you'll find Old Testament prophets who say pretty much the same thing about the house of the Lord in their day. They too were reformers. One of them was Amos, a minor prophet, and the first of the writing prophets. By the way, they're called minor prophets because their books are shorter, not because their messages are insignificant. This is Amos. The dominant theme in Amos is stated in chapter 5, verse 24. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Does that sound familiar? It ought to. Dr. Martin Luther King quoted it often during the struggle for racial equality, and it remains to this day a clarion call for God's people to stand up to injustice and oppression wherever it exists. The gospel is good news. Whether it's about salvation by grace or about breaking the chains of injustice and oppression that enslave so many of God's children. In his first public sermon, Jesus chose a text from Isaiah, a prophet, and applied it to himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he declared, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. If that annoys you, join the crowd. Jesus' audience didn't like it either. And just wait till you hear what Amos has to say. From his prophecy, we have just three snippets this week. But together, they communicate God's profound concern for justice. Is this a message for individuals? For the church? For the nation? 
in a word, yes. All of the above. And I want to recommend that you really use the learning guide this week. It just gets better every week. But this is this week. Really make a copy of that thing and use it. It's so good. Having said that, let's have prayer. And then we will look at our lesson. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors. And we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The following is a record of what Amos prophesied. He was one of the herdsmen of Tekoa. These prophecies about Israel were revealed to him during the time of King Uzziah of Judah and King Jeroboam, son of Joash of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Amos said, The Lord comes roaring out of Zion. From Jerusalem he comes bellowing. The shepherd's pastures wilt. The summit of Carmel withers. Unlike Isaiah, the statesman, or Jeremiah, the priest, Amos was a farmer, a herdsman, and a grower of sycamore figs. He lived in Tekoa, near Bethlehem, in the southern kingdom of Judah, but he was called to preach in Israel, the northern kingdom, during the reign of Jeroboam II. Both Israel and Judah were prospering. But Israel had reached the zenith of power and material prosperity. Under Jeroboam II, Israel had expanded her borders and acquired control of nations that paid Israel taxes. In addition, Every traveler who passed through Israel had to pay a tax just for passing through. Times were good. The economy was good. The people were prospering. They had summer houses, winter houses, ivory houses, plenty of entertainment, rich food and wine, and the best furniture on which to display it, enjoy it, and entertain with it. But only two classes existed, the very rich and the very poor. And as the song goes, the rich got richer and the poor got poorer, much like they do in our country today. Interest rates were exorbitant, sometimes as high as 60%. And because of their debts, people sometimes had to sell themselves into slavery. Worse. There were two sets of justice. One for the rich and another for the poor. And nobody cared. Conditions were so bad, in fact, that when God needed a prophet, 
he had to go to Judah to get one. There was nobody in Israel to speak for God. That judgment is imminent, is already clear. The Lord comes roaring out of Zion from Jerusalem. He comes bellowing. Can you hear God's voice? Can you feel God's anger? These people are not just guilty of personal foibles and individual sins. As a nation, as a people, they are guilty of heinous sins. Sins against humanity. And in chapter 5, Amos says that those not actively engaged in the crimes, but who sit silently by, are equally complicit and therefore equally guilty. Sobering thought. But he offers them and us a chance to repent. Seek good and not evil so that you can live. Then the Lord, the God who commands armies, just might be with you as you claim he is. Hate what is wrong. Love what is right. Promote justice at the city gate. Maybe the Lord who commands armies will have mercy on those who are left from Joseph. Despite their oppression and abuse of other people, Israel, like our own nation, believed that God was on their side. They believed that God would fight for them. But notice Amos' message, the words, might and maybe. There was some possibility God would do just that, but only if there was genuine remorse and radical repentance. While it was too late for Israel as a whole, God appealed to those left from Joseph, a remnant, if you will, still true to the faith of their famous ancestor, Joseph. To them, God said, seek good and not evil, hate what is wrong, love what is right. That's a positive, hopeful invitation. To seek good means to seek God, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. There is a forceful connection between God's closeness and human ability to live justly. As Micah, another one of those minor prophets, puts it, God has shown you what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Justice, mercy, humility. That's God's idea of goodness in a nutshell. Righteousness is one of God's chief 
attributes. It means a lot of things. But God's righteousness is virtually synonymous with his justice. God treats us justly, and he expects us to extend justice to other people. It's the theme of many of Jesus' parables. Being righteous means living differently. It means loving what God loves and hating what God hates. It's not enough to say the right words or even to have the right motives if they're not put into practice. Neither sympathy nor empathy mean much if they don't translate into action. God is straightforward about what action means, too. Promote justice at the city gate, he declares. In the ancient world, the city gate was like a courtroom. It was at the city gate where legal issues were settled. But it was also the place where the poor and disenfranchised were most vulnerable. So, while justice is a legal term, it is also a moral term. Literally, when God called for justice in the city gate, he meant that people should be treated with fairness and compassion by those in charge, by the judges and the leaders of government. Deplorably, however, those with power were neither fair nor kind. Ah, but they were very religious. They never missed church. They sang the songs, read the affirmations of faith, got in line for Holy Communion, and gave generously when the plate came by. No doubt they talked a lot about how God had blessed them and insisted that God receive all the glory for their wealth and power. Just made no difference in the way they lived. God knew it. And God didn't like it. According to Amos, those who live in selfish luxury at the expense of those less fortunate do not impress God. I absolutely despise your festivals. I get no pleasure from your religious assemblies. Even if you offer me burnt and grain offerings, I will not be satisfied. I will not look with favor on your peace offerings of fattened calves. Take away from me your noisy songs. I don't want to hear the music of your stringed instruments. Justice must flow down like torrents of water. Righteous actions like a stream that never dries up. Here, in the first person, God declares in the strongest terms how he feels about empty religious activity that is unconnected with the imperative to love mercy and do justice. I absolutely despise it, he proclaims. I hate your festivals. I hate your assemblies, your offerings, your music. We are so accustomed to thinking about God's love that we can't even imagine God hating. He's just too nice, right? Seriously. 
Google that phrase, God hates. And look at all the stuff that pops up. This is not the stuff God hates. What God hates is right here in Amos. What God really hates is our religious attempt to please him or impress him or even worship him if we don't treat people fairly, both in our own attitudes and in our actions and in the way we tolerate injustice when they see it in other people. Thankfully, God doesn't say he hates us. He hates injustice, but he hates our role in it. And he offers us a chance to work with him in our world to make things better. How does the message of Amos relate to God's people in the 21st century? In a land flowing with an abundance of water, it's easy for us to miss God's command to let justice flow like torrents of water and righteous actions like a stream that never dries up. But that metaphor would have resonated in Israel, an arid land where water was scarce and therefore precious. And that same metaphor equates righteousness with justice. Amos is written in poetry, mostly. And that's important. In Hebrew poetry, a second line in a couplet repeats the one before it. It doesn't say something new. Thus, justice and righteous actions in this couplet are synonymous, just like torrents of water and streams that never dry up. Justice, then, is the social application of righteousness. Indeed, the same root word for righteousness is often, in the Bible, translated justice. In the Sermon on the Mount, for example, when Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, the idea is, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after justice. And what is the promise? They shall be filled. What does the message of Amos, how does it relate to the people of the 21st century? Well, let's start by seeing ourselves in the text and stop wagging our finger at those awful Israelites. Actually, the timing of this lesson is perfect. After yet another horrific week, of hatred, violence, and death in our country. We are approaching the orgy of materialism, gluttony, greed, sloth, and self-gratification that stretches from Thanksgiving through Advent and Christmas, and into the new year. We call this time the holidays, the holy days. 
And even as we gear up for it, God is saying, I hate your festivals. Nevertheless, our yards, our houses, our tables will be Pinterest ready when the time comes. Probably working on that right now, right? We will eat until we can hardly move. Then we will watch football. Another religion, by the way. And then we will eat some more. On bright Friday, we will get up at dawn, if we've even gone to bed yet, and wrestle our way into stores so that we can get more stuff we do not need to impress people we do not like. Every conversation will begin with, are you ready for the holidays? And children will be asked over and over, what are you getting for Christmas? Nobody asks, what are you giving for Christmas? We're just not wired that way, are we? Sadly, we've conformed to this world's self-centered scheme of values rather than being transformed by God's will for justice and peace, which the holidays are meant to bring. And let's be honest about living out sole deo gloria. Glory to God alone. Do we ever excuse our own materialism by giving God glory for it? A family builds a half million dollar house thanking God for his blessings, but ignoring those who have no home at all. Another says grace over a sumptuous meal while doing nothing for children who go to bed hungry every night. Another vacations where missionaries can barely afford to live and then thanks God for a wonderful trip. What is wrong with us? How does the message of Amos relate to God's people in the 21st century? If we are right with God, if we are righteous, we will care more about things than we do about people. In his classic book, Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster states that Jesus declared war on the materialism of his day and on ours. And Foster relates a liberating experience of giving his bicycle to a friend who had no transportation. Alex told me I better not say that. He doesn't want to talk about the bicycle. <laughs> he gave it to a friend who had no transportation, but soon thereafter, Foster's son asked for permission to give his lunch box to a kid at school who didn't have one. Foster's response, Hallelujah! What a modeling message for our children. As the holidays approach, the holy days, let's consider the issue of justice. Don't we all have more than we need? Look around your house at the things you own in multiples. Can you get by with just one of those items and think about a way to give the rest of them away? Y'all, that includes Bibles. How many Bibles do you have in your house? There are people hungry for the word who would love to have one of your Bibles. At this point, uh, I have to say a word about Leslie Green's blog. If you haven't read The American Way, 
Please read it. It is a brilliant treatment of this need versus greed uh, dynamic and a great commentary on Amos. Seriously, Leslie, I considered reading the text and standing up here and reading your blog and sitting down. Y'all ought to read that, seriously. Okay. Back to how this relates to us in the 21st century. Are the gifts you give, clothing, food, housewares, decor, coffee, chocolate, whatever, produced on the backs of the poor? Does their crop production, manufacturing, delivery, whatever, damage the creation? Are they grossly overpriced because of their logo or their label? Will you go into debt for buying them? Y'all, this is huge, huge. The issue in Amos' day was not that interest rates were so high, but that they existed at all. God's law forbade interest. And God reminded the people repeatedly that they had been slaves themselves and therefore should never enslave another human being. It was the basis for all of the covenants thereafter. Moreover, he provided for relief periods on the liturgical calendar. When property, money, and indentured servants all had to be released. Liberated. Return, restored. God is against anything that enslaves people. Finally, consider giving yourself. Maybe it's time to get past thoughts and prayers and be more intentional and relational when people are suffering. Self-sacrifice is, is, too, the heart of the gospel. The Great Commission says to make disciples, not converts. And that requires spending time with people. It can be risky, sticky, Frustrating and sometimes downright painful. You will be hurt. But it's the only way to do evangelism that works. It's the only way for people to see Jesus. That is to see him in you. Promoting justice in our broken world is profoundly countercultural. Other people won't understand, and we may face resistance and unfair labeling, perhaps worse. When the teaching team met Wednesday to discuss this lesson, Jane Ray shared a poignant story of being called a do-gooder for wanting to provide adequate housing for, for the poor. Our grandson, Aaron, who was absolutely blown away by his house-building mission with the Ray family and our Grace students, confided to his papa in me, 
When my church takes a mission trip, all we do is hand out tracts. Do you hear the difference? God calls us to a ministry of doing good because that was Jesus' ministry. He went about doing good. As John Wesley famously said, do all the good you can by all the means you can and all the ways you can and all the places you can and all the times you can to all the people you can as long as ever you can. What better label can we wear than do-gooder? Do-gooder. Do good. Our mission is to promote justice right here and right now. Looking at the magnitude of the need, we may feel powerless. We may be only a remnant, but it is to us that Amos speaks today. Remembering Martin Luther's famous declaration, here I stand. We must ask ourselves, where do we stand? And what price are we willing to pay for refusing to budge? One thing is sure, no one will stand alone if we stand together. We are here this morning to worship God and to draw strength from each other so that we can go out there and be the church. That's where we are, the church. We're only here to draw strength from each other. And we do that remembering the words of Jesus our Lord. Whatever you do for the least of these for the poor, the oppressed, the enslaved, the wretched of the earth, whatever you do for them, you do for me. Thank you for being here.